0: This week on Invisibilia, we have the tale of a singer and a journalist who take on terrorism in Somalia with a reality TV show a la American Idol. Can a reality show change reality? Find out on Invisibilia from NPR. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Parker Palmer. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at OnBeing.org. I think I've told you before that I have also uh, struggled with depression and had a pretty serious clinical depression a few years ago and, and read your book. Your, actually, did you publish your essay on depression in Weavings first? That was
0: the first iteration, yeah. Yeah,
1: I read mm. it in Weavings and then again in Let Your Life Speak. And and so what I'd like to do is just, just talk that through with you, the soul in mm-hmm. depression, how you've experienced that, what you mm-hmm. mean when you talk about it. And um, I... You know, you've written so eloquently about it, and, um, you know, I'd be interested if there's anything that, that isn't in the book that seems important to you now or that, you know, if you've continued to reflect on this in different ways. But I, I'd like to begin just by asking you to tell me a bit of the story, you know, your, what happened, how you began down that path into what you call the dark woods called clinical mm-hmm. depression. Right. What happened to you back then? When was that?
0: Well, it. it uh, I went through two periods of, of clinical depression, and both of them when I was in my 40s. Um, they were separated by a, a couple of years and both lasted a year to a year and a half, and both were, were deeply devastating experiences. Um, in, the, in the second half of each of those two depressions, um, I was uh, constantly thinking about killing myself, uh, waking up each morning wondering if this would be the day to do it, and actually practicing um, various methods of doing it from time to time. I never made uh, any uh, determined bid at uh, taking my own life, but I Certainly had it on my mind uh, constantly during those during those times. Um, I, I should add that in during both of those periods, I um, needed for a while to be on antidepressants in order to uh, sort of stabilize myself right. enough to um, to to be able to take next steps but I understand my, the kind of depression I had as being much more situational than uh, genetic or biochemical. And I, I always like to make that distinction because some people have depressions that are, that are, I think, 100% genetic or biochemical, and they need to be treated as such. Other people, I think, have depressions that are at the other end of the continuum uh, which are heavily situational, and they should be addressed in those terms. And then, of course, there's a tremendous amount of confusion between those two sort of pure types where, yes. where the, the two get mixed with each other. I mean, if you have a, if you have a situational depression, you uh, experience things like insomnia, which have biochemical effects, and, and so that side of the of the equation... Uh, starts feeding in and if you have a biochemical depression, uh, you're going to get into situations in your life that exacerbate the problem. so it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to to diagnose and and discern.
1: I know you you wrote that in your book also that you felt that yours was essentially situational but um, but also it was really physically paralyzing and crippling by the sound of it. Uh, sort of oh, makes this connection between body and, and soul apparent. Yeah, very it? much
0: so. I think I think anyone who's been there, you know, knows without doubt that there is a body soul connection of a very powerful sort. Yes, it was. It it lays you low physically. Um, there are simply days when you don't want to get up and are, are not at all sure that you can get up um, and. Normal activities seem absolutely impossible. Uh, one of the things that I've always loved to do is read. and and when you're depressed, you can't even do that. You yeah. suddenly become aware that an hour after you picked up a book, you're still staring at the same page.'ve um, you've, you've been paralyzed in terms of just taking a, a next step with your eyes or with your mind.
1: Yeah, you know, for those of us who use our minds and pride ourselves on them, that's it's devastating for it just to stop working.
0: like that. It is. It's it, it, it's an annihilating experience um, when you're in the depths. It's a it's an utter loss of identity. Uh, everything that that you have used to say to yourself, I'm a I'm a worthwhile person. I'm a person who's serving some purpose in the world. I'm someone who's doing some kind of work on behalf of some kind of goal. All of that gets taken away, and and it is that experience of annihilation that um, I think in the in the spiritual traditions gets referred to as the dark night of the soul, yes. or the kind of the the, the night of non-being.
1: And, you know, I know that you have worked through your depression and what it taught you spiritually, but you were a spiritual person before that and known to be um, a wise and spiritual, a religious man. Um, did it surprise you for that reason that this was happening to you? Did it surprise others or did you feel defensive about that?
0: Yeah, I think I think that the word I would use was was not so much that it surprised me as th- as that it shamed me. Um, I, as you say, I I already had an image. I mean, most of us do. Mine had partly to do with with writing books about the spiritual life and with giving talks and and uh, uh, being the leader of a of a spiritual one of the leaders of a spiritual community. And and of course. In in my mind at that time, and I think in the popular mind generally, um, that kind of life, that sort of spiritual dedication and and spiritual high-mindedness is not supposed to go hand in hand with something like clinical depression. Mm -hmm. You can put it more generally and say that in our culture, people... Who are perceived as doing worthwhile things or who are perceived as being successful aren't supposed to, to be depressed. And so when you find yourself depressed, you, I think one of your first thoughts is I can't let anybody know about this because it's so shameful. It so profoundly contradicts uh, the image that I've carefully built up over the years uh, that it has to be kept as a dark and dirty secret. Um, problem, of course, is that since you stop functioning, it's pretty hard to keep it a secret for for very long. And deeper still, the problem is that keeping it a secret um, tends to make you more depressed.
1: Right. Or you, you end up exhausting yourself through the effort of that. I think that mm-hmm. was my experience. Um,
0: yeah, you exhaust yourself, and in some way, of course, you are feeding into... The annihilation of yourself mm-hmm. by by your refusal to embrace what is happening to you, by your refusal to make it uh, to to take it in as a part of your life, and to share that part of your life with with people who um, who uh, have have some meaning for you.
1: Now, as you say, you had an image, you had a reputation, um, you were a, a spiritual leader of sorts, and and the soul is something that you um it was part of your vocabulary part of your working vocabulary and that you were something of a teacher about and I wonder now I know that in the very midst of a depression I mean well how do you recall could you think about the soul or what was happening to your soul in the midst of that um what what would be your perception of what happens to your soul in that in the deepest darkest place
0: well, it's it's such a complicated reality that it's a hard question yeah. to answer. On one level, you you're not thinking about soul at all. or let, let me put that a little differently. Going into my experience of depression, um, I thought of the spiritual life as sort of climbing a mountain mm-hmm. until you got to this this high, elevated point where you could touch the hand of God or, or you know, see a vision of, of wholeness and beauty. it The spiritual life at that time had nothing to do, as far as I was concerned, with going into the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> Even though that phrase is right there at the heart of my own spiritual tradition, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't what it was about for me. So... <laughs> On one level, you think, this is the least spiritual thing I've ever done. And the soul is absent. God is absent. Faith is absent. Uh, everything you've ever depended upon uh, is gone. Um, but on another level, in my case at least, as I, as I worked my way painfully and, and just sloggingly uh, day by day through this, this horrendous experience, I started to come to a new understanding of what the spiritual life was about, of what, of where one found God, and of, of, the, of what the soul was like. Um, one way that I would now put it is to say that all of the faculties that I depended on before I went into depression were now... Utterly useless. My, my intellect yeah. was served no good purpose at all, and I have a fairly strong intellect, and it was just, it was just totally impotent. Um, my feeling life was was gone. Um, people who've been depressed know that that. It's it's not like having a real bad feeling. It's like having no feeling at all, which is really scary. Of course, yeah, uh, it, yeah. It's like it's yeah. like being numb emotionally, numb. And and my will, which has always been strong, I, I've always been able to exercise willpower to work my way through difficulties. That was that was shattered as well, uh, and, and yet. As I worked my way through the, that darkness, I sometimes became aware that way back there in the in the woods somewhere was this this sort of um, primitive uh, piece of animal life. Uh, I mean, just s- some kind of existential reality, some kind of of core of of being of my own being i don't know maybe of of the life force generally that was alive and and that was somehow um holding out the hope of life to me and i and so i now see the soul as that wild creature (laughs) way back there in the woods that knows how to survive in very hard places knows how to survive in places where the intellect doesn't where the feelings don't and and where the will uh, cannot uh, so it, everything got revisioned for me but that's that's of course looking back right um, now
1: you write and speak a lot now about the soul as a wild animal um, mm-hmm. did that? That uh, insight begin with your depression?
0: yeah, absolutely. Huh. Um absolutely. it was it was this wildness that somehow helped me stay alive, catching an occasional glimpse of it, um realizing that that I was more than my intellect, my emotions, and my will, um, that that I was some kind of, That within me was some kind of life force that was independent of all these things that I had come to depend on, and when those things were gone, that soul was still available.
1: And you uh, also did the things that everyone, I think, that most people who realize they're depressed do try to do, which is you—you did turn to medication for a while. (laughs) to stabilize, and also you sought a a psychiatric help or a psychotherapist, but you had trouble. It it seems like you wanted to find a great psychotherapist who also would allow the dimension of faith into the conversation. Is that right?
0: Yeah. It was critical to me, even though at the time I couldn't have put it in those words, Mm -hmm. but the the story is that I, I sought out medical help and ended up seeing a couple of MD psychiatrists who were incredibly <clears throat> dismissive of, of, of any spiritual dimension to this at all, who simply didn't want to hear me uh, sort of blather on about um, my the dark night of the soul. They simply wanted to start uh, putting me on antidepressants of various sorts, and see which one would take care of it,
1: right.
0: um, and 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 I found <clears throat> I found that profoundly <laughs> offensive, and which I think was one of the early clues to me that that perhaps my depression was not strictly biochemical, but was but needed to be dealt with in a in a more three dimensional way but it, it troubles me a great deal to think that most people who who experience depression have access only to this narrow medical model that always involves administering some drug yeah and often does not dis- involve listening to what's th- to what the patient wants to say about his or her life um, I just have a feeling that that in this great complicated mix of depression, a lot of stuff is getting lost that might be very life giving for people uh, through this narrow medical model.
1: Right. If if yes, and I mean, as someone who has also benefited from mm-hmm. from antidepressant medication, I mean, I know how wondrous those medications can be and how helpful. But it's really a very diminished and narrow approach to to what a human being is. Right. To to just treat this with medic, just treat it with medication.
0: Well, that's my belief and my experience. Um, and again, I, I don't want for a moment to, to say that um, people shouldn't be on medication. I don't believe that. I was on medication myself for periods of time, and it was helpful. And some people need to be on medication for the rest of their lives. And, and n- nobody should say anything that makes that shameful or more difficult to do than it, than it inherently is. But by the same token, we shouldn't be talking about depression in a way that sort of invites people to ignore the reality of their own lives and the reality of the, of the fullness of their selfhood. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, see, I see lots of young people. I do a lot of work in higher education and I see lots of college age students who are suffering from depression. And almost always, the, the the quote solution they are given is antidepressants. Mm. They go to the to the uh, college health service, mm. and um, th- that is if they're lucky, and if what they've got isn't simply diagnosed as a study habits problem, um, which uh, it sometimes sadly is. <clears throat> but they go there and they get antidepressants. I talk to them and in an hour or so, it becomes pretty clear to me that what they're really suffering from is the pressure that they've been under from their families, for example, for the last 10 years of their lives to become something they don't want to become. Um, The kid who wants to be an artist who's been told from uh, middle school on that he's got to be a doctor, he's depressed. It seems to me to be often a no-brainer as to why. But there's very little support for to help people explore those life choices, those those forces of distortion that often take us in a in a way that that is upstream to the soul that, mm. that's against the grain of our own nature. And that's that's the piece that I think we con- we need to lift up constantly. In a, in a culture that's always looking for quick fixes.
1: Now, when you finally found a, 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 was it a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist? It
0: was actually a Jungian psychologist. A Jungian
1: psychologist who, who you were comfortable with. Um, he asked you, you wrote, to think of your depression as a friend.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: what, what did he mean by that? And what did that come to mean to you?
0: Well, he, <clears throat> this therapist, first of all, of course, listened to me, and he listened to me for a long time. I don't think that this this comment that you refer to came uh, until we'd been talking together pretty regularly for maybe six months. And uh, the act of being listened to, of course, was inherently healing for me. I think it is for most people it's pretty rare to really to be heard at a deep level. Um, But he did eventually say six months down the road, he said, Parker, you, you seem to image your depression as the hand of an enemy trying to crush you. Could you instead image it as the hand of a friend trying to press you down to ground on which it's safe to stand? And I, while I didn't instantly understand what he meant and 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 it took me time to really uh, um, decipher the full meaning of that um, the, the words themselves sort of jolted me and and certainly the whole notion that depression could be a friend was was really quite shocking <laughs> um i what I've the meaning that I came to make of it eventually and that I believe to this day is was right for me is that my depression was if you can image this it was like a figure standing uh, a block or two behind me um, which from pretty early in my life was was calling my name and and wanting to say something to me but I ignored it. I just kept walking down the street, not wanting to turn around and find out what this what this figure wanted or what this voice had to say. Well, if you if you image that literally, uh, you you can imagine that this figure, this person behind you, gets frustrated, comes closer, starts shouting and screaming rather than just calling, but you keep walking on, ignoring it altogether. And so closer still the figure comes, and now um, this figure is throwing pebbles at you and maybe getting (laughs) close enough to hit you with a stick. But you, (laughs) in full power of intellect, emotion, and will, (laughs) keep walking forward with this great trajectory of your life. And so finally this figure says, look, if I can't get your attention any other way, I'm going to drop the nuclear bomb of depression right on your head. And, and that was what helped me understand that all in the world I ever needed to do was to turn around and say, what do you want? <laughs> um, it, depression was, was, for me, the, the moment when I did turn around and say, to this figure, which I would now call true self or or soul or inner teacher, whatever you want to call it, what do you want? And when I started listening to the truth within me and hearing things about myself that needed attention in my life, changes that needed to be made, directions that needed to be taken, um, that was the turning towards starting to get well. So, I did come to understand that the darkness um, can be befriending, that um, these great pitfalls that occur in our lives um, can have uh, the function of taking us to a safer place. And one of the images I have is that for many years I was living at great elevation, Uh, whether you think of it in terms of the elevation of the ego or the elevation of of the, the kind of spirituality that I was describing earlier, this sort of up, up and away spirituality, or the elevation of trying to live by a certain abstract code of ethics, which didn't have much to do with, with um, my gen- genuine responses to situations. Um, when you live at elevation and you you tumble and fall as we do every day, you have a long, long way to fall and you may hurt yourself or kill yourself. But if if depression presses you down to ground on which it's safe to stand, um, you can fall 10 or 12 times a day and just get up and take a next step. And that's an image that's come to mean a lot to me that that flows from what, what my therapist uh, had to say.
1: So where is God in all of this?
0: Well, Tillich, you know, described God as the ground of of being. being. Mm-hmm. And I came to think that maybe if, if I was standing on the ground, I was standing in God. Um, I no longer think of God as up there somewhere. I think of God as down here. Uh, which I think is, in my own Christian tradition, is pretty consistent with incarnational theology, with the whole notion of embodiment and of, um, of a God who, who journeyed to earth to, to be among us compassionately to suffer with us, to share the journey.
1: I love this. There's a sentence from your book. I, I had embraced a form of Christian faith devoted less to the experience of God than to abstractions about God, a fact that now baffles me. How did so many disembodied concepts emerge from a tradition whose central commitment is to the Word become flesh?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a baffling question to me to this day because I see it continuing to happen, but I take embodiment very seriously, and of course, depression is a full body experience and a full body immersion yes. in the darkness. and it is an invitation, at least my kind of depression is an invitation to um, take our embodied selves a lot more seriously than we than we tend to do when we're in the up up and away mode.
1: yeah you know, I mean, I'll tell you though when I think of depression. I go less to, I mean, I, I don't go to the dark night of the soul so much as straight to Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a feeling of total abandonment.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. It is a feeling of total abandonment. And I remember that in the middle of of my depression, my my friend Henry Nowen um, sent me a a simple postcard on which was a painting that had been made by John of the Cross of the crucifixion, apparently the only painting that John of the Cross ever produced. And John if, of if the Cross me- wrote
1: The Dark Night of the Soul.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and if, if memory serves me right, this is his soul surviving, at least, painting. And I remember meditating on that image. It's a kind of abstract, almost modernist image of the crucifixion, and I remember meditating on it for a long, long time because it, it, I did... I did identify with it, and it was only it was only after working my way through that sense of abandonment um, that that the bloodiness of the crucifixion that I was able to come to these more um, what for me are life giving images of of standing on the ground
1: so you know let's dwell with that for a moment because I think um Uh, One critique I've heard of how Christian tradition does not help people who are suffering from something like depression is that suffering itself, you know, by some interpretation, it would would be said to be glorified, you know, in Mm -hmm. Christian tradition. That that it's good for you and you just need to to bear with it uh, Mm -hmm. and not complain. Um, But you're sort of turning that image around in terms of the way you've come to apply it.
0: Yeah, I am. I mean, I think there's a lot, unfortunately, about suffering in Christian tradition that's hogwash, if I can use a technical theological term. (laughs) Um, It's awfully important to distinguish in life, I think, between true crosses and false crosses. And I know in my growing up as a Christian, I didn't get much help with that. A cross was a cross was a cross, and if you were suffering, it was supposed to be somehow good. But I think that there are false forms of suffering that get imposed upon us, sometimes from without, from injustice and external cruelty, and sometimes from within by ego distortion and other uh, dynamics of of the inner shadow that really need to be resisted. I do not believe that the God who gave me life wants me to live a living death. I believe that the God who gave me life wants me to live life fully and well. Now is that going to take me to places where I suffer because I am standing for something or I am committed to something or I am passionate about something that gets resisted and rejected by the society? Absolutely. but. Anyone who's ever suffered that way knows that it's a life-giving way to suffer, Hmm. that if it's your truth, if it's your identity and integrity, you can't not do it. And that knowledge carries you through. But there's another kind of suffering that is simply and purely death. It's death in life. And that is a darkness to be worked through to find the life on the other side.
1: And I don't know what's. I'm just struggling with this a little bit because you know things. There, there is there are there is suffering as in physical suffering as in I don't know cancer or some kind of physical illness that that can't be grappled with. Now the thing about depression is not always, but often it can be sort of wrestled with and moved beyond, transcended.
0: Well, I've known people. I know people this very day who are living with cancer, who have used that experience in a in an utterly transcendent way, who who not about whom it, it isn't just me speaking, but who would say for themselves, um, this this threat to my life, this disease that will almost certainly take my life, has made me value life all the more and has made me more of a life giver to those who are around me. So I'm not talking about a magic act where you wave a wand of positive attitude and the disease goes away. Um, but I'm talking about a way of transforming that darkness into remarkable forms of light that, um, that, that I've seen with my own eyes. Um, I don't I don't demand or ask of everyone that they do that, and how some people are able to do it, while other people are not, is a total mystery to me, right. um, and You've it's also, a mystery. F- yeah. You've also spoken for which about
1: that mystery in depression, uh, the mystery yeah, of depression. Yeah,
0: my- it's a mystery. I think we have to hold with deep respect, as I say in in Let Your Life Speak, in my in the chapter on depression. Um, People walk around saying, I don't understand why so-and-so committed suicide. Well, I understand perfectly why people take their lives. They need the rest. Depression is absolutely exhausting. It's why, day by day, for months at a time, I wanted to take my life. Um, What I don't understand is why some people come through on the other side and reclaim life with new vividness and, and with new intensity. That is the real mystery to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I only know one thing to do in the face of mystery, and that's to stand there with deep respect and silence and reflectiveness and simply try to learn what one can.
1: And, and the soul is in that mystery, I guess, for you.
0: Yeah, the soul is in the mystery. God is in the mystery. Selfhood is in the mystery. Um, absolutely, it's all, it's all right there. And it's a, it's a force field that, um, that we need to learn to enter um, to see what it might have to teach us. Um, that we live in a culture that doesn't like the force field created by mystery. Um, we like the force field created by problems we can solve, <laughs> problems for which there's some sort of technical fix. Um, give us one of those and we'll chew on it until we get the right answer. But give us something that, uh, that is in essence mysterious. Um, and we really shy away from it because we instinctively know that, that we're not going to be able to fix this sucker up um, or, or, or even figure it out. But I, I think there's a way of entering into that force field that that the spiritual traditions call us to, but that we're also called to by great literature, by poetry, uh, by the liberal arts tradition, by all kinds of of stuff at the humanistic r- roots of our culture.
1: I wonder if there's anything in particular in Quaker tradition, your tradition, that you think was especially helpful for you in processing this experience of depression sort of theologically?
0: Well, I I think that one of the things that was helpful to me, and and I I should note that I encountered Quakerism in my life at age 35, uh, not too many years before (laughs) I entered my first experience of depression uh, in my early 40s. uh, I, I think you know one of the things worth worth noting is that Quakers, in my judgment at least, know how to respect the mystery. Um, they they know how to sit in silence in front of the great mystery. Uh, they know that silence can speak louder than words. Um, they don't have a great need to conceptualize uh, everything theologically or philosophically. Um, they're, I think, you know, more interested in embodiment than in doctrine. Mm. And all of those things were, were I think, great resources for me um, as I entered upon this journey. I, I think at the same time, it, it could paradoxically be said that It was being introduced to Quakerism and the sort of nakedness of the spiritual journey, as Quakerism understands it, this this waiting in silence, that may have helped take me into depression in Mm -hmm. part. Because the silence, I think, forced me to start confronting things or understanding things or experiencing things about myself that I really didn't want to deal with. Um and and that some other forms of religious faith which are more uh, boxed and tied, had maybe helped me avoid yeah.
1: uh,
0: there there is there are forms of religion that give you the answers. and um, if the answers if the answers work for you, then you're not going to get into this kind of trouble perhaps, although my own sense is that life comes along and, and, um disproves most of those answers at some point. That's right. and, and and then people have to wrestle uh, for themselves. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you could make a case that, a, as a friend of mine once did, I mean, I, I I actually went to a friend at one point. She happens to be a a a member of a religious community, a sister, a Roman Catholic sister. And I said, you know, I've been on this wonderful Quaker journey, and, and I've been sitting in silence, and I've learned to pray, and I have been feeling so much closer to God than I ever did when I was just clinging to doctrine. Why am I now feeling so full of death? And she said, well, I think the answer is simple. The closer you get to the light, the closer you also get to the darkness. And it was another one of those, uh, of those phrases, like the one that my th- therapist gave me, that I didn't understand right away. But right away I knew there was some kind of truth in it that I needed to try to understand.
1: Well, how do you understand that phrase now?
0: Well, I can, I can give you, you know, the, the image that comes quickly to mind is yeah. a literal physical image. If you're moving closer and closer to a very bright source of light, you're casting a longer and longer shadow. As you, as you move in. Um, so on that level, it makes literal sense to me. But I also understand in a way that I didn't um, in early on in my journey of faith, that this God that we speak about is in fact, as it says in the Hebrew Bible, a God who makes weal and creates woe, a God who is at the pivot point of everything, and who's, wh- whom we reduce to a kind of happy, favor-giving, domesticated God only at our great peril, um, the peril of not understanding what the force field of life is really about. Um, So, I understand that to move close to God is to move close to everything that human beings have ever experienced. And that, of course, includes a lot of suffering Mm -hmm. as well as a lot of joy.
1: And do you think that that as you move closer to that, you're also... Given or developing the capacity to bear all of that, to sort of live with that tension.
0: Well, I think that's a I think that's an ongoing journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I one image that's very powerful for me is that life, as I embrace it more deeply, will break my heart. But I have a chance to, I have a decision to make about how I will understand the heartbreaking aspect of life. I can choose on the one hand to to think of the broken heart as a heart that's lying shattered in pieces all over the floor, a heart that doesn't work anymore, a heart that's died. But I could choose also to think of this broken heart as a heart broken open to greater capacity, greater capacity to hold the whole range of human experience. And uh, it's that latter understanding that makes the most experiential sense for me Mm -hmm. and that's most hopeful for me. Um, it, It seems to me that my own experience of depression has in fact made my heart larger but i also know that that day by day i have choices to make about whether to protect my heart against more heartbreaking experience or whether to open it and take the risk once again that uh, that it will be s- stretched into something larger uh, so i think i guess what i'm saying is that there, there is a piece of this that's up to us that depends on um, the intentionality with which we take this journey, the resources we seek on the way, the kind of guidance that, and community that we reach out for, um, but if one is fortunate in all of that, I think it's possible, yes, to grow a larger heart that's that is able to hold uh, what life gives it
1: i think uh i think this is wonderful i think we're coming close to the end i i, I sort of want to just have an just say something to you about reading your writing about depression for me when i first read that weavings article now when would that have been maybe four or five oh, years ago yeah, you
0: know, let's see. I actually have oh, a, a note to it early in. The first
1: time that you published what later was this chapter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, let's see. That would have been, uh, well, I'll find it here. It's in the footnotes.
1: Uh, oh, <laughs> um, well, I have the book, it's, too. It's
0: somewhere I... in the book, yeah. Yeah, all right. But well, it's, anyway. It's five, six years five, ago. Five, six years
1: ago. I think it was pretty close to my own big depression or I may have still been coming out of it and uh, it, was, it was hard for, I wanted to read it <laughs> mm-hmm. it was hard for me to take it in or even in some ways to take it seriously because I was still too close to that nothingness, do you know what I mean? It, yes. And I, I'm just wondering if this is part of the mystery that time is involved. And when I read the, when your book was then published just last year uh, then it was a great gift to me, this this mm-hmm. image of, of seeing your depression as a friend. But I had to have some distance from that experience uh, myself. Well, and then it was just... Uh, but it also says something about how this experience stays with you and marks you and is a part of who you are. I mean...
0: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I Absolutely. read your
1: book, you know, really not in depression anymore. And yet... It was a piece of my experience, and it was something that I could work with in mm-hmm. a very present way.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. For me, certainly, uh, as well as for you, uh, I, I just found it. Uh, the, the The essay was published in Weavings in 1998, and yeah. that speaks to time itself. Uh, in 1998, I was 59 years old. I was almost 60. These depressions were in my 40s. It took me, ballpark, 15 years, 10 to 15 years, to come to the point where I could write about them. That's about the passage of time. Um, I could no more have written about them in, in the early years of my emergence than I could have flown to the moon. Um, there was, it was just too raw. It was too intimate. Um, it, it was too baffling. And it took me time to sort it out, to, to, to embrace it as part of who I am in public as well as private. So certainly the passage of, of time is absolutely critical. What, what I have found, of course, having written about it is, first of all, how the very act of going public about depression helps me stay healthy. Um, because a lot of my depression was about trying to hide out the pieces of me that I didn't want others to see um, until they sort of made their own claim on my on my life you know if you won't pay attention to me when I call gently I'll drop a bomb on your head Um, that's a tough
1: love friend though
0: (laughs) yeah it describing. is a tough it is a tough love friend, and yeah. it's it's called true self and, <laughs> and you don't want to mess with it you know right. um so it it you know it uh, the, the 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 um writing about it helps me stay healthy, but it also i think um g- gets responses it it helps create community around something that makes all of us feel very isolated. And there's some sort of healing in the community itself. The, the number of young people who have said to me, thank you so much as someone who has, who has gone somewhere in the world for talking about the fact that you went through this deep darkness because I thought I was all alone in that. I thought I was doomed or destined to be a total loser because of it and to realize that it's a shared journey with people who are farther down the road has been a great a great support and blessing to me. Well, that's a support and blessing to me as well. Uh, anytime we can create community around something that that y- y- that in the culture tends to isolate us is I think very very important and worth doing.
1: Yeah, and you know and again just getting back to the the subject of this show um, the f- the fact that I think the thing in the midst of a depression that feels so absent, I would say, is your very soul, right? The ground of your being has dropped out. I mean, right. I don't even think I could think about <clears throat> God one way or the other. I had to put the idea of God to one side. Right. And yet... Some of the most profound observations that you're making and that you're saying that can be possible out of some depression are precisely about those aspects of of human experience and.
0: right. And you know as i as I said earlier, it, it, it as best I can reconstruct it. and a lot of it's hard to reconstruct yeah. because you're not you know you're you're so out of it that uh, I don't entirely trust my capacity to reconstruct it. but as best I can reconstruct it, like you, the thought of God, um, all of those theological convictions were just dead and gone during that time. But but from time to time, back in the woods, that primitive wildness was there. And um, if that's all God is, I'll settle for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll settle for it easily and mm. thankfully.
1: Okay. Well, I let me, Krista. I'm going to just
0: say one more thing um, about this, which is that the the one piece that we haven't touched on that, and I don't mean to open up a whole new line of inquiry here, but um, mentioning community a moment ago and how important community is around the experience of depression, also made me think that we haven't said much about what I try to do in that chapter in terms of how other people responded yes, to me. Yes, yes. And I know that in churches and, and religious communities generally, these are places also where depression is either taboo or it gets responded to in ways that aren't at all helpful. So for whatever it's worth, let me just at least name that yeah. that's, that's a piece of the puzzle.
1: And And I thought, and I also, when you were talking about how quaker tradition that just that people know how to be silent i was recalling that passage in in what you've written about your depression about the friend who helped you the most who would just come mm-hmm. be with you
0: right yeah. this this i'll just tell that story yeah, quickly because yeah. it's such a great image for me of i had folks coming to me of course who wanted to be helpful and sadly many of them weren't um these were the people who would say uh, gosh parker it's why are you sitting in here being depressed? It's a beautiful day outside. Go go, you know, feel the sunshine and smell the flowers. And that, of course, leaves a depressed person even more depressed, because while you know intellectually that it's sunny out and that the flowers are are lovely um, and fragrant, you can't really feel any of that in your body, which is dead in, in a sensory way. And so you're left more depressed by this quote, good advice to, to get out and enjoy the day. And then other people would come and, and say something along the lines of, gosh, Parker, why are you depressed? You're such a good person. You've helped so many people. You've oh,
1: you're so successful. Written,
0: you're so successful and you've <laughs> written so well. And and that would leave me feeling more depressed because the, I would feel I've just defrauded another person (laughs) who, who, if they really knew what a schmuck I was, um, would cast me into the darkness where I already am. Mm. They, they too, have settled for my public image rather than (laughs) being willing to embrace my personal reality, which at that time felt pretty shabby. There was this one friend who came to me after asking permission to do so. Every afternoon, about four o'clock, sat me down in a chair in the living room, took off my shoes and socks, and massaged my feet. He hardly ever said anything. He was a Quaker elder, and and yet, out of his intuitive sense, from time to time would say a very brief word, like, I, I can feel your struggle today, or farther down the road, I feel that you're a little stronger at this moment, and I'm glad for that. But beyond that, he would say hardly anything. He would give no advice. He would simply report from time to time what he was sort of intuiting about my condition. Somehow he found the one place in my body, namely the soles of my feet, where I could experience some sort of connection to another human being. Mm. And the act of massaging, um, just you know, in a way that I really don't have words for, kept me connected with the human race, what he mainly did for me, of course, was to, to be willing to be present to me in my suffering without either trying to invade it, to rush in with all kinds of fixes, like it's such a nice day, or evade it, um, kind of l- looking at me getting scared and walking away. He just hung in with me in this very quiet, very simple, very tactile way. And uh, I've never really been able to find the words to fully express my gratitude for that. But I know it made a huge difference. And it became for me a metaphor of the kind of community we need to extend to people who are suffering in this way, which is a, a community that is neither invasive of the mystery nor evasive of the suffering, but is willing to hold people in a, in a space, a sacred space of relationship, where um, somehow, somehow, this this person who is on the dark side of the moon can 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 get a little confidence that um, they can come round to the other side.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much.